0: Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Kathleen Stringer. I'm a professor of clinical and translational pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy. I also serve as a scientific editor for pharmacotherapy. Today we are talking with Dr. Yaman Kake, who wrote a paper that she co-authored with a P3 student, James Krentz, titled An Overview of Hyperinsulinemic Euglycemic therapy, and calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdose, which is in the November issue of pharmacotherapy. Dr. Kake is is board-certified in pharmacotherapy, nutrition support, and critical care, and comes with 12 years of academic and clinical experience as a clinical associate professor of pharmacy practice at Purdue University College of Pharmacy and is an adjunct associate professor at the Indiana University School of Medicine. She is currently chief medical officer at Salas Vitae Group. Dr. Kake, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Dr. Stringer, for the kind introduction and opportunity to be here today. This topic has generated a lot of interest recently, and I'm so excited to be here to discuss our work.
0: Well, thank you let's just start out by having you give us a brief overview of the scope of the problem of calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdose.
1: Sure. Both calcium channel blockers and beta blockers are associated with fatal substance exposures within the United States and worldwide. According to a report by the American Association of Poison Control Centers, cardiovascular drugs account for almost 7% of all toxic drug exposures in the U.S., and calcium channel blockers and beta blockers specifically make up about 8% 8% of all fatal exposures. That's why it's imperative that healthcare providers are familiar with the management of these overdoses. And as you know, a variety of pharmacologic treatment options are available for clinicians to use to help mitigate harm from these poisonings. And pharmacists especially are uniquely positioned to play an integral role in the management of these cases.
0: Are you concerned that there's either un- underrecognized or inappropriate treatment of these overdoses?
1: Well, the main issue really is that cases of overdose with these agents have the potential to be both complex and very difficult to manage. Management is largely supportive and needs to be tailored to the individual patient. And many clinicians are comfortable with conventional pharmacologic therapy, which has included intravenous fluids, glucagon, calcium, positive inotropes, and vasopressor agents. Now, hyperinsulinemic glycemic therapy. Involves the use of high-dose intravenous regular insulin while maintaining normal blood glucose concentrations to help treat the toxic effects of beta blocker and calcium channel blocker toxicity. And this was once regarded a last-ditch effort to treat patients with highly refractory cases. Uh, But in recent years, it's become routine in the treatment of these overdoses. Despite positive reports and endorsement by toxicology groups, what I found is that clinicians still have a number of inquiries regarding efficacy and logistics of administering this therapy which includes timing of therapy, safety concerns using the high-dose insulin, and frequency of monitoring to avoid adverse events. Our article aimed at examining current literature regarding uh, hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy and calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdoses, really to educate clinicians in making therapeutic decisions regarding this therapy. And we really wanted to lay the groundwork for future research opportunities as well.
0: Well, excellent. Was there something in particular that prompted you and your student to write this review, maybe a clinical situation you encountered?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I like to tie my scholarly work with real-world dilemmas faced by health healthcare professionals, and this review actually resulted directly from a patient case I was consulted on in the emergency department. We had a complicated patient being managed acutely with conventional therapy, and the topic of hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy was brought up. And although this therapy is no longer a last-ditch effort for refractory patients, and I would say it's even routine in some institutions, I could really sense the hesitation among the whole medical team for the reasons I outlined above. Um, Therefore, we were really inspired to delve further into the literature to provide more specific guidance for the clinicians on strategies for dosing, for administration, and monitoring process to better care for patients in the future. We also decided to write this review um, to encompass both both the scientific theory, in addition to providing recommendations for clinicians. And overall, I like to mentor students through the writing process, and I was really happy to work with James Krenz, who is a phenomenal student and future pharmacist, who really expressed the same enthusiasm for this topic that I did.
0: Yeah, that's really terrific. Regarding maybe some of the more specific aspects of, of writing the paper, particularly since you had to kind of dive into this topic for The care of a particular patient, was there something um, that surprised you or what surprised you the most uh, when you did the literature review in preparing for the writing of the paper? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so a few items really stood out in our review. Um, First of all, a very high reported success rate was associated with this therapy, which actually surprised me. It was greater than 80% and also at the same time reporting a very safe adverse effect profile. We do note in our, in our article that this is subject to reporting and publication bias, but this finding is consistent with messages shared by many toxicologists, as well as a recently published expert consensus guideline that endorses early use of hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy. Many toxicologists have also, just, have also suggested that HIET, or hyper, hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy, is superior to vasopressors in the treatment of calcium channel blocker toxicity. However, there have been no studies comparing the two modes of treatment. I would also say another item that surprised us is that um, finding such a wide dosing range for insulin infusion. For hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy, it is reasonable to recommend a continuous infusion of 0.5 to 1 unit per kilo per hour following the bolus insulin dose, but we saw cases that used insulin infusion rates as high as 10 units per kilo per hour of regular insulin with success. And one patient case we saw even um, involved nabivolol overdose that used an insulin infusion rate as high as 21.8 units per kilo per hour without any adverse clinical outcomes. So that was really quite surprising. Now, we don't believe that these higher infusion rates indicate a more dramatic resolution of symptoms, but just simply reflect the complexity or severity in these specific overdoses. Either way, it's really interesting seeing such a broad range. And one last item I would say that to add to that, that list would be that we even saw some literature to suggest that hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy can be used safely and effectively to manage patients who experience toxicity due to properly dosed medications. So in our article, we actually discussed the case of a symptomatic patient that was on therapeutically dosed beta blocker and whose symptoms were managed successfully with this therapy.
0: Very interesting. In your, in your paper, you talk a little bit about the mechanisms of calcium channel and beta blocker toxicity. Can you, can you summarize for us the primary mechanisms of these toxicities and why hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy is effective?
1: Absolutely. Let's talk first about the mechanisms of toxicity, which will help us kind of understand why this therapy is effective. So obviously, beta blockers work by directly inhibiting beta adrenergic receptors, and the mechanism of overdose of beta blockers are due to a decrease in myocardial activity, um, triggering bradycardia and decreased contractility. In an overdose, these patients can experience life-threatening shock due to this large sudden decrease of both chronotropy and inotropy. Some agents may also have some systemic effects, either based on their drug characteristics, such as cardioselectivity and lipophilicity. So, for example, agents that are more lipophilic have a higher tendency to cross the blood-brain barrier and have potentially unwanted side effects on the central nervous system, such as sedation and altered mental status. As far as calcium channel blockers go, uh, these agents directly inhibit the influx of calcium at L-type calcium channels, and the toxic effects of calcium channel blockers are primarily due to conduction blockade and reduced contractility of myocardial cells. So in an overdose, this relative selectivity can potentially be lost, and even dihydropyridines, which normally exert their effects in the peripheral vasculature smooth muscle, can exert negative inotropic effects at supertherapeutic doses. So this can explain why poisonings of dihydropyridines and non-dihydropyridines present similarly, despite their distinct pharmacologic characteristics at therapeutic doses. Now, Patients with calcium channel blocker overdoses often present with drastic hypotension caused by excessive vasodilation, and their situation can further deteriorate because calcium channel blockers can inhibit the myocardial compensatory effects of increased heart rate and contractility. Outside of the cardiovascular system, blockade of L-type calcium channels in pancreatic beta cells can result in decreased release of insulin. And this inhibition of insulin secretion explains why patients can potentially experience hyperglycemia and severe calcium channel blocker overdose. In addition, the resulting hypoinsulinemia can further exacerbate the clinical status of the patient, since myocardial cells use glucose for energy during periods of stress. Therefore, myocardial cells are pretty much unable to use glucose freely for energy, further decreasing the contractility of the heart and leading to shock. So. Overall, the combination of the decreased cardiac function, vasodilation, and the inability to use glucose due to hypoinsulinemia can explain why calcium channel blocker overdoses have the potential to be so deadly and why management of this condition is important. Now, as far as the mechanism of the hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy, well, the exact mechanism hasn't actually been defined, but animal models have provided a strong theoretical basis for us. First of all, Insulin has direct concentration-dependent inotropic effects on human myocardial cells. Therefore, insulin is able to increase the cardiac output in both beta-blocker and calcium channel-blocker overdoses and treat their toxic effects. In addition, uh, hyperinsulamic euglycemic therapy was also shown to decrease systemic vascular resistance, which can be beneficial in these overdose cases, since the myocardium has less opposing force to overcome to allow adequate cardiac output and systemic perfusion. Other mechanisms tie pretty much to the direct supply of dextrose and high-dose insulin, which uh, allows for myocardial cells to uptake and effectively exploit glucose as a source of energy. And we've really nicely outlined the proposed mechanisms in figure one of the paper for for those readers that are wishing to, to delve more into this topic. I would also say that it's important to note that the clinical improvement in blood pressure, mean arterial pressure, heart rate, and mental status is usually seen within about 30 minutes to four hours from the commencement of of this therapy, which supports the argument for early use. And I would say it's reasonable to consider this therapy either alongside initial pharmacologic uh, interventions, especially because these patients often require multiple treatment modalities. Now, one final thing I would like to say about um, this this therapy is that, that insulin doses with hyperinsulamic euglycemic therapy are often, again, much higher than those typically seen by most clinicians. Many practitioners are familiar with IV insulin therapy in the context of diabetic ketoacidosis and hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, for which the American Diabetes Association recommends an initial intravenous bolus of regular insulin at 0.1 0.1 units per kilo followed by an infusion of 0.1 unit per kilo per hour. However, most successful cases of hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy used IV bolus uh, doses of insulin at 1 unit per kilo, which is 10 times the dose for DKA and HHS. And obviously, this can make the medical team a bit nervous. Uh, however, despite the uh, despite these high insulin doses, current literature suggests that this therapy is safe and effective, especially with close monitoring of electrolytes and glycemic status. And we've really um, outlined the um, our list of recommendations for uh, for maintaining euglycemia and for monitoring in Table Two in in the paper as well. Thank you.
0: In your paper, you mentioned that there are still some unknowns about hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy. Can
1: you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So based on the literature review, we really believe that more research is needed in several key areas. First of all, optimal duration of hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy is an important question. There does not appear to be any clear indication of when therapy should be discontinued. However, the main concern lies is that the potential for patients to deteriorate into cardiac arrest if this therapy is prematurely discontinued. Some reports um, have suggested that patients can develop significant hypotension if this therapy is is stopped early. In those patient cases, this uh, hypotension resolved upon reinitiation of the therapy. So it's really unclear when, when it should be started again. Now, there are a lot of factors that go along with the duration of therapy to consider, such as specific pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic parameters of the agents, or formulations. So for example, sustained release or extended release formulations may warrant a longer therapy duration. But again, this can vary based on the duration of when the the agents were pretty much ingested. Presently, the decision to discontinue this therapy is really dependent on observation of each patient's clinical picture. Based on our analysis, we really suggest a slow tapering off period of at least several hours to monitor for worsening blood pressure, heart rate, or mental status as the therapy is discontinued, but we also suggest at the same time continuing dextrose for several hours after weaning insulin to avoid hypoglycemia. Another area I would say, another kind of um, unknown, is really regarding the optimal efficacy targets in published literature. Based on our review, we think it's reasonable to target systolic blood pressure of greater than or equal to ninety millimeters of mercury, um, and heart rate greater or equal to fifty beats per minute. A lot of the studies have really talked about mental status uh, resolution, mental status changes, and that's another reasonable efficacy target. But again, a lot there needs to be more consensus among most studies, just because you know there are some that focus on mean arterial pressure and some that just focus solely on systolic blood pressure and heart rate. So we need to take a closer look at that. Uh, another item I would really recommend for future research is just regarding the frequency of monitoring and specifically more consistently more consistency is needed for serum potassium goal for hyperinsulinemic euglycemic therapy. And finally, I would say that um, more research is also needed on the concurrent therapies. So for example, we recommend concurrent dextrose and IV fluids, and a recent retrospective chart review found that the incidence of hypoglycemia was lower when euglycemia was maintained with IV dextrose concentrations of 20% or greater. We know that the selection of these IV fluids is really based on provider preference, formulary, and product availability. And another point to consider along with this fluids consideration is that these patients are often receiving massive amounts of fluids through insulin infusions, IV fluids, and other treatments, you know, maybe the patient's on antibiotics or other pressors. The concern for fluid overload is real, and the the development of pulmonary edema is important to, to watch out for. Along the same lines, there has been discussion about evaluating more concentrated insulin preparations specifically for use in these patients. Now, obviously, with this, there's concern for patient safety and misadministration. So obviously, close communication and monitoring is required to ensure that no inadvertent errors exist with a very concentrated insulin preparation. But this would really be an ideal kind of way for patient populations that require more stringent fluid restrictions, such as heart failure and renal failure patients. So just something to think about in the future.
0: Well, thank you. I hope our, I hope our listeners have, have found this uh, informative. I certainly have. Very much appreciate your time today, Dr. Kaki, and, and your contribution to pharmacotherapy.
1: Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was a pleasure speaking with you. listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via
0: iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.